Hello, friends, and welcome to the first ever episode of Idea Lounge. The basic premise of this podcast is that we're going to be sitting down and having conversation with some super awesome and unique people about whatever cool idea it is that they're working on. So, for instance, this could be professors in their research or coaches in their coaching strategies or entrepreneurs or basically anyone at all who has an awesome story or a cool idea worth sharing. I don't really know where it's going to go. I'm just super excited to start it out. And who am I? Well... My name is Calvin Ish. I'm a student at Indiana University who loves learning and sharing cool ideas, and I'm your host for this show. Today, we're going to be talking to a historian named Professor Leah Shapkow. Leah is a medieval history professor at IU. She studies historical pedagogy, which means she tries and finds the best way of teaching history to maximize student potential. She has also translated many different historical texts and is currently working on something called the Chronicle of Andra. Professor Shopkow has presented her findings at tons of different conferences around the world and has even won the McGraw-Hill Magna Publications publication for her work on historical pedagogy, just to name one of her many awards. On this show, we're going to cover a lot of ground, including why is history still important? What makes great students great? What exactly do historians do anyway? How can we find our passion? And lots, lots more. I had a great time recording this episode with Professor Shapko, and I hope you will enjoy listening to it. She's one wise lady, so there are loads of different lessons to be taken away. So with that, just sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Professor Leah Shapkow. Professor Shapko, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, I have, I've been wanting to start a podcast like this for the past several months, and now I finally have a willing participant. So thank you so much for agreeing to be my guinea pig. It means a lot. It's fun to be a guinea pig for certain kinds of things, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> yeah. So I thought we could just start by learning a little bit more about who you are. So can you tell us what do you do and what was the adventure that led you to IU? Well, I teach medieval history. I've been here at IU for, I think, 28 years and teaching for over 30 um, and my degree is in medieval studies. And actually, I ended up doing this because when I was a teenager, I read a mystery. And the mystery was actually one that a lot of people read and had very similar responses to. It was called The Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay. And her detective is laid up in bed with a broken leg, and he's bored. So a friend of his brings him a bunch of portraits from the National Portrait Gallery in London and one of the portraits is of Richard III. And he sets out to try to find out what happened to Richard III's nephews. This is sort of a famous mystery in English history. The nephews disappear. We don't know what happened to them. Um, and most people had believed that Richard had had them killed when he became king. So the detective becomes convinced that this is not so. And it really gripped me. Um, and actually, I was just reading a New Yorker article about that novel, and what the uh, interviewee said, which is absolutely true, is it made research seem romantic. And so I was caught up in this whole problem, you know, was he right, was he wrong? Um, in those days, by the way, Richard III's body had not been found. So some of her assertions have been proved dead wrong, in fact. Uh, but. Uh, but it was that kind of romance. And so in high school, I decided I was going to be a medieval historian. And I did. I became one. I've drifted back in time. I don't work on English history, and I don't work on the 15th century. But that was how I started. Mm -hmm. I think the Middle Ages, there's something about them that's just like so attractive to so many different people. I mean, I think back to my childhood and... I know I would always play this game with my uncle where we would have sticks and we would fight each other with them like we were knights fighting mm -hmm. and we would go and chase dragons and try to find them. What do you think it is about the Middle Ages, especially like within history, that's so attractive to a wide audience? It is different but not too different. So it's different enough to, be, to make us go, hmm. I often have students write micro-histories where they take a very small object, it might be a text, or it might be a physical object, and they, re they research it. And I always tell them, look for stuff that makes you go, hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that is strange in the Middle Ages, really, really odd. And at the same time, so many of our institutions, universities, 
the church come from the Middle Ages in a fairly direct kind of way. So we feel an attachment to it, but they're not us. Um, and I think also that uh, there is a sense of a world where people are much less constrained than they are in the modern world. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that kind of medievalism has really been developing since the 19th century and the rediscovery of the Gothic and people like the pre-Raphaelite painters. A world that seems more straightforward, that seems simpler, that uh, seems more authentic in some way than the civilized world. Um, and the end of the 19th century sort of really got into that whole notion, but I think we still have it. Um, and plus, you know, swords and sorcery <laughs> and dragons. I mean, there's all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, I love the, I love the adventure and stuff that you see there. Um, so how did you come across that novel that led you into becoming a historian? Did someone recommend it, recommend it to you, or did you find it on your own? It was just a mystery. And um, the person who wrote it, Josephine Tay, was a fairly successful mystery writer. Uh, she also wrote plays. And it, you know, it came across my, my desk, as it were, as a mystery. I think my mother brought it home from the library. You know, I sort of picked it up. My parents had a lot of books in their, um, in their personal library, and I would pick up things. There were things that I now think maybe, you know, 10-year-olds or 11-year-olds shouldn't be reading, you know. <laughs> there were no restrictions on what I could read. Anything I could pick up and read, I did. I remember picking up John Hershey's Hiroshima at 8, which was probably a major mistake, because um, I had night terrors for years afterwards. Um, but one learns by doing that. Um, so I was really quite free in an intellectual sense to explore. And my family argued over the dinner table all the time, which is another part of um, how I ended up here. And I have to say also, rarely, it was a rare thing among even my cohort, we're seeing much more vocationalism in education now, but even in my day, parents were asking kids, so what are you going to do with that degree? My parents never asked me that question. They thought that I was going to school and it was wonderful and I was loving what I did. And when I went off to graduate school in medieval studies, not a whisper out of either of my parents that maybe this was not the most practical <laughs> course of action to take, um, but just encouragement and pleasure when I got my PhD. I was very lucky in that particular way. So what would you tell to people who maybe don't have your parents, like who have parents who say you need a degree that's going to get you a job, who but who are still like impassioned by something like medieval history or something else, how, how would you try to encourage them to either follow their passion or listen to their parents? What would you say to them? I guess what I would say to them is this. It's not wrong to be concerned about what you're going to do after you get out of college. And we are in a funny world now where uh, computers are doing a lot of things that human beings used to do. And machines are doing a lot of things that human beings used to do. And so there are fewer jobs. And I think as a society, we haven't really come to grips with that or figured out what that means or how we should manage to deal with that. But we also live in a knowledge economy. and. Knowledge is not only practical, but also has a general dimension. Every one of us is going to have to take something that we learned in one context and turn it into something that we use in a different context. I'll give an example from the um, educationalist David Perkins, talking about a man who was an electrician. And they were talking about plumbing. And so he designed a plumbing system, which would work perfectly well. And they asked him why. And he said, well, you know, I looked at it, and it looked like it might have some of the same principles in operation as an electrical circuit. So I used that knowledge to create this plumbing system. 
And that's the kind of thing that we're going to ask people to do. We're going to ask them to have that kind of mental flexibility. So, what I would say to a student is get the best degree you can. Take something that you will throw yourself into heart and soul and do your absolute best effort in. And I would say to the parents, that's the road forward for your student. I would also say to the student, it wouldn't hurt if you took a statistics class. So that, um, you know, take a few classes that have some practical skills. So it might be, you know, some computer classes. It might be uh, some statistics classes. But most of what goes on, for instance, in business is your knowledge of human beings, your knowledge of how systems work, your knowledge of cultures and cultural differences. Those are the things that are going to allow you to be a successful person, whatever you end up doing. Um, and so education is about making you a whole and a bigger person. It's not necessarily about a particular job, particularly a job that may not be there. You do, are we going to need as many accountants now that we have, you know, QuickBooks? Or um, that we have Excel sheets and we have calculators? Do we need human beings to do those things? Some things, probably. Um, we will need accountants to help people figure out how to design the best uh, saving programs for them how to organize their finances in the way that meets their personal goals. Such an accountant has to have interpersonal skills too, has to understand people, has to understand culture. It's not all about money. Um, so I think that education in that larger sense is an enormously important thing. So just like exposing yourself to a lot of different things is, is very important, you'd say? I would say, but also finding a passion and really throwing yourself into it. And do you have any advice for finding a passion? Because personally, I have tried to throw myself or try to expose myself to as much things as possible, but there's not one particular thing that, that sticks out. And I know that a lot of my friends are in the same boat here at college. So what advice would you give to people like me for finding a passion? Are you in your first semester, man? I am. I am a first semester freshman. It will come. That's my advice. Be patient. It will come. It's not unusual to start as a freshman not knowing what you want to do. So you take different courses and you do your best in them. That too, I would say, throw yourself as much into them as you can. Um, I know there are many distractions here, wonderful things to do, lots of social opportunities. But the bottom line is people are here to be educated. So whatever courses you're taking, make those a priority. Um, do put aside time for fun, though. I'm not saying spend your entire life in the library. Um, and trust that by your sophomore year, something that you are doing will really grab you and engage you. I don't think that's predictable. Um, so that's hard. Waiting is hard. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> yeah, but thank you for the advice. I will definitely do that. I thought we could talk a little bit about historian, historians. Um, so. The question's got to be asked, and I'm sorry about this, but with the advent of Google and the internet, whenever any fact and any story is available to our fingertips with the push of a button, why are historians still important? The facts don't change. Well, I mean, occasionally we'll find something new and we'll find some new facts. I referred to Richard III. Josephine Tay concluded that Richard III could not possibly have been hunchbacked because he was crowned in a ceremony that involved um, being anointed on his bare chest, so he would have had to take off his robes, um, and that he would not have exposed himself to the world in that way. In our class, you know, we've talked about disability and the prevalence of disability in the Middle Ages, and people may have been much less self-conscious about those kinds of impairments. Well, when they dug him up from under the parking lot in Leicester, they discovered he was severely scoliated. So, yes, he was hunchback. Um, and uh, so we do get some new facts. But facts have no inherent meaning. They are what they are. Rich, uh, William the Conqueror conquered England 
in 1066. He fought the Battle of Hastings on you know, October 14th, 1066. What does that mean? We can Google that fact. We can find it anywhere. It's probably as close to being an absolutely true fact that you get in the Middle Ages because we're always getting things through various kinds of sources. There's often a degree of, of uh, uncertainty. But it has meaning only in a context. And what historians do is they create a context in which something has meaning. And we create that context out of our modern lives and our modern needs. So, for instance, in the wake of Brexit, 1066 is a point at which England becomes drawn into the larger European community through changes in its language. It might be argued, for instance, that modern English is more closely related to French in many ways than it is to German. Uh, it has meaning in terms of how English cultural institutions developed. And we tell different stories, and different facts have a different place, depending on what story we're trying to tell. But we're always asking questions that come out of our own needs in the modern world, which is why historical stories change over time. Different people are asking the questions. They're asking different questions. They're getting different answers. So my interest is in how people write history in the Middle Ages. And I'm really interested in the ways in which we write history and the purposes we put history to. We live in a society that is drenched in history. Historical references everywhere. When the Tea Party makes a names itself, it's making a reference to history. Now, historians, of course, will shudder because the, the Boston Tea Party had as its aims rather different goals than the modern Tea Party has. But that's an appeal to history. Could you speak about that really quick? What, what do you uh -huh. mean by the, the Boston Tea Party had different aims than the modern Tea Party? What, was, what were the goals? Are there misconceptions that we have as Americans, like looking back on? There are, but you know you're, you're asking a medievalist this that's question. And so you probably, no, no, it's all right. You probably want to ask, you probably want to ask a, an Americanist this. But the Tea Party occurred in a context in which the issue was not simply we don't want to pay taxes, but we wish to be consulted about the taxes that we pay. We do not wish some other people in some other place to decide that we have to pay this tax. Uh, the modern Tea Party, I think, is, is in opposition largely to the notion of taxation entirely. Um, and, and so the analogy is not a particularly good one. Let me give you another example, though, of the ways in which we use history to think about our current situation. So when we went into uh, Afghanistan after 9-11, um, many people had uh, reference to the Vietnam War as an example of a war in which the, you know, the United States got bogged down for years and years. There were a large number of casualties. It had serious repercussions for our economy. Um, certain sorts of taxes that were initiated because the Vietnam War, people are still paying. So I think tax skeptics have a certain right to be skeptical because taxes tend not to go away once they've <laughs> been initiated. But um, so different people were then looking at the Vietnam War and taking different lessons from it. There were people who said, see, the Vietnam War is this quagmire. We're just going to get involved in another quagmire. A lot of those people are saying after the, our involvement in Iraq, see, we told you so. Um, <laughs> other people were saying, no, the problem with the Vietnam War was we were not willing to put the kinds of resources into the war that we should have, we would have wanted if we put those resources. Those people are now saying, see, if we'd only put more resources into Iraq, things would be settled by now. So we use the past to talk about the present um, and to inform us. You can hear the same things going on with the election. I think this would be a different election, for instance, if Nazi Germany hadn't happened. Because 
what happened in the 1930s in Germany, what happened in the late 1920s and 1930s in Italy, is something which people are bringing up in relation to um, the current electoral, uh, the current election. So, um, so we we use the past to think about the present, and sometimes we go very remotely into the past because we have a critical distance in relation to the past that we don't have in relation to our own society. As I often say to people, you know, we can talk about lots of stuff in the Middle Ages. We can talk about women's role. We can talk about marriage. We can talk about um, religious belief. Those people have been dead a long time, and we don't know any of them personally. And so we can be dispassionate about them in a way that we can't be dispassionate about our parents, our grandparents, ourselves. And so is that what you do as historians? Do you, like, look back on these historical events and, and provide... Uh, kind of correlations to our modern life? Is that, is that what the role of a historian is? That is the role of history. Historians actually are quite careful um, to keep a dividing line between their modern selves as citizens and the work that they do. Um, where we are situated um, is um, called a positionality, okay? Our positionality is our upbringing, our, our religion, our culture, our ideas. And what historians really strive to do is we ask questions that arise out of our positionality. We try very hard not to impose our positionality on the past. So, for instance, I've had students taking the issue of marriage. In marriage, a lot of money changes hands. And uh, students often get very angry about this, particularly female students. And they say, you know, oh, they're buying wives, or they're paying people to take their daughters off their hands. And that's imposing the, a modern transactional notion on something which is very far from what medieval people thought about what they were doing, and what men thought they were doing when they provided a dowry for their daughters, or women, because sometimes mothers provided the dowries, was they thought they were putting in a nest egg for a future family. And in fact, if their daughter died without children, they fully expected that that money would come back, since that family had not, in fact, been created. There were no children. Um, the same thing um, would be happening with a dower, which didn't go to the parents of the bride, uh, but went to uh, their uh, to ensure that the, that if a woman was widowed, she would have some substance to live off of for the rest of her life. Um, it also, uh, so, so we have to be really careful not to do, bring our modern ideas into the past and insist that past people had to think about them the way we do. Um, and so that kind of, it's called perspective taking, is something that's very important. I would say that one of the big applications that history has in the world is if we can take the perspective of past people in a dispassionate way, perhaps we can learn to take the perspective of contemporaries in a dispassionate way. To understand that somebody who doesn't agree with us politically is neither stupid nor evil, but in fact is operating from a world with different givens. And we need to understand what those givens are. We may never agree with them. We may think they're wrong. To be a political person in the modern world is to make choices about where we want to go. But I think it's now cr critical more than ever to learn to see how people see themselves in their world. I'm not, by the way, making an argument that we should learn how, you know, we should sympathize with how Hitler saw his, wor <laughs> his world. I mean, that's where the, the argument t tends to go. Oh, well, you know, you're saying we should sympathize with, with Hitler. But if we want to look at, for instance, 9-11, we want to understand how the people, the passengers on the plane felt. We also want to understand how the hijackers felt. We don't want to sympathize with them. We don't want to endorse their actions. But we want to understand. Because if we don't understand, there will be more of them.
There may be more of them anyway, but we run far better chances of, of stopping them if we understand them and we understand the world in which they're operating. Yeah, so um, for those of you who don't know, I'm currently enrolled in one of Professor Shapkow's courses. It's called Medieval Heroes. And basically the, the premise of the course is we look at how the perception of what it meant to be a hero changes throughout the ages from late antiquity to the end of the Middle Ages. Um, and it's really, really interesting to see how it's changed. But basically the only thing that we do in the homework is we try to, uh, we read all of these different works and try to understand like what the audience was thinking when they read it. And it's really, really hard to, I mean, you really have to think about it. So um, how, how do you get your students to, to better empathize throughout the year? Is it just the practice of actually putting an effort forth to empathize with those people? Or how, how do you try to um, make your students better at understanding where the other side is coming from? It's largely practice. Um, there is some modeling, you know, where I will say, well, look, this is how they see it. Um, but it's actually a difficult skill. And it took me a long time, I think, to reach the point where I was able to do it. Um, probably graduate school. Um, that sort of that sort of seems a bit reductive. I mean, I was working on it all the time, but it is something that one gets better at with practice. It is not a natural move. It is a natural move to empathize with other people. I mean, we have these mirror neurons, and you can see it in very small children when one child cries. Other children may cry, or other children may come over and try to comfort that child. We do understand other people's feelings, but we tend to assume that they feel as we would. And so it is, as Sam Weinberg would say, an unnatural act to think historically, to try to see how somebody who doesn't see the world the way we do sees the world. Um, and so yes, it's constant practice, and I think that it is a practice that often will take people years to get really good at. Um, so, so we keep practicing. I hope that people get better at it. They actually do get better at seeing how the context will shape the way people think. And I'm happy to say that I can actually provide some data for that because I've been involved in the History Learning Project. And one of the things that we're really emphasizing is we can't just say students are learning this because I'm teaching this. We actually have to collect some data to see whether they're actually learning it. Can you tell us what the History Learning Project is? Sure. It was a group of uh, four people, three of us historians, David Pace, Arlene Diaz, and myself, and an uh, educational developer, Joan Middendorf, who works in the Center for Innovation, Teaching, and Learning, the CITL, here. Um, and we began an investigation about how students uh, learn history, growing out of a methodology called Decoding the Disciplines. Decoding the Disciplines, which was created by David Pace and Joan Middendorf, is an exploration of what they call the disciplinary unconscious. We learned how to do what we do largely tacitly. And in 2006 and 2007, I think those years, I'm not swearing to those years, <laughs> we interviewed almost half the people in the history department about places where their students got stuck in their history learning. And we also asked them when they learned to do that thing which their students were unable to do. And almost uniformly, they could not tell us. They had no memory of doing it. I actually have a memory of not knowing how to do literary analysis. And I remember saying to my teacher, I was a junior in college by that point, you know, it's like watching a magician pull a rabbit out of a hat. You, they have the hat. You see the magician put his hand, her hand, into the hat, pull out the rabbit. I can see the, ha the hat, I can see the rabbit. I saw that rabbit come out of the hat. I'm standing here, my hand is in the hat, I can't find the rabbit. 
and he left. But that was the feeling of there's something happening here that I don't understand. I don't know how to do it. Uh, I don't remember, however, when I learned to do it. That's the funny thing. But I do remember not knowing how to do it. Um, and some of that is because a lot of education is done tacitly. When historians teach courses, we talk about our content a lot of the time. We don't talk about the thinking that we want our students to do about the content. And some students come out of that experience thinking they haven't been asked to think at all. Oh no, we, we had to memorize a bunch of stuff. Okay. So we were exploring um, this problem, which is also the problem of the card game Mao. I don't know if you've ever played the card game I Mao. I have played Mao before, no. Okay. Mao, as Wikipedia says, is a card game of the shedding variety, which means the goal is to get rid of your cards. It has one rule. The rule is, I can't tell you the rules. <laughs> so you start playing. And when you break a rule, because of course the game does have rules, it's just the rules are entirely tacit. Someone will tell you, take a card. You know you broke a rule. You don't know which rule you broke. So eventually you have to figure out which rules that you, you've been breaking from when you're asked to take a card. Now this is a fascinating game, and I suspect that if you went to different parts of the country, the tacit rules are different. But a lot of education seems to function like a game of Mao. A student turns something in. A student gets a C on it. A student may have a few cryptic comments. What did I do wrong? I don't know. I just, I'll take a card. <laughs> and eventually, some students will intuit the rules for some disciplines. And we will say they have a knack for it or they're good at it. So part of decoding the disciplines was to move beyond the people who were able to learn the rules tacitly and to make the rules explicit and to give students practice doing the things that the rules tell you to do. Um, so we, that's about the, the History of Learning Project. In 2008, we got a big grant and we did three years of experiments. We collected a lot of data and we now seem to have more or less disbanded. David's retired. Um, Arlene Diaz is working on a very exciting disciplinary project. We still collaborate on some uh, smaller projects. But the goal is the same. And we always try to collect evidence of what we want students to learn to see whether they're actually learning it. Now what's interesting about that is, of course, you always have students who don't. So the data is not always you know, thrilling or exciting. But what it does do often is it shows us places where we can do better um, by encouraging students to do certain things. Um, so there are things that I've changed in teaching the course this year based on the data that I collected last year about places where students get stuck. And typically the pattern that I see, by the way, or I've seen in the previous years, I'd love to see it change this year, but we'll see, is that students um, get a much better sense of what historical context is and how to use it between their first posters and their second posters. And then some teams make some incremental progress in their third posters, but it's generally not as much. And so we'll see if we can nudge students a little bit further on that third poster um, to get a little better idea of, of historical context. And so, just a little bit more about the course. Mm -hmm. um, so, one thing that I thought was odd, kind of, whenever I first came to your first class, is you gave us a syllabus, and there was no tests on the course. So, we're reading all of this material, but not once are we tested in the traditional sense over it. So, instead, we have these posters, mm -hmm. uh, and we have three posters throughout the year. Could you kind of explain, I guess we kind of covered this a little bit, but the, the reason for the posters? Sure. I'll be glad to talk about that. And it comes down to um, an idea called backward design that was uh, written about by a pair of scholars, uh, Wiggins and McTai, in a book called Understanding by Design. And the whole goal of a course, ultimately, is for students to know things they didn't know before and to be able to do things they, didn't, they weren't able to do before. 
So backwards design starts with saying, what do I want my students to know and to be able to do at the end of the course? And the second step is, what would show me what they are able to do and what they know? So I was thinking about this, and I said, I want the most important thing is I want students to have a better grasp of this notion of historical context, of audience, you know, that people are expecting certain things in the stories about heroes, that the context is creating the kinds of heroes that they're expecting. What would show me that? Now, I'd had students write essays, and there was a problem with essays. One, they've written a lot of essays. Essays are a ritual production. And I read a truly brilliant article by Bob Bain that had rewired my brain educationally called Rounding Up Unusual Suspects, in which he argues that classroom rituals are extremely powerful, and particularly after students have had 12 years of them. Uh, and that part of what we need to do, okay, here's a catchy word, is we need to disrupt those rituals. So I started to think, what would disrupt the ritual of the essay. So one of the things about the essay is students keep throwing facts in. And they hope that they'll throw the right facts in and that some of them will stick. And that as we read the essay, when we see the right facts, we will assume the students actually have some really developed ideas about those facts. The essay tends to mask student thinking. or students echo back to us things that we've said. So that's our thinking that's coming back. I wanted students to be able to come up with their own ideas. So that was one. Two, um, my brain was also rewired by an experiment that Heidi Elmendorfer did in which, uh, and she teaches biology at Georgetown. She had her introductory biology students go out and teach classes in the DC high schools uh, not high schools, in elementary schools, about science. And her theory was that when you take something you know in one context and you translate it, that process is a learning process for you. The science they were teaching sixth graders was really elementary, far more elementary than college students. But the students said it was so hard to sift through the ideas and figure out how to simplify them and present them to a much different audience. And they talked about how much they had learned from doing that. So I was inspired by that as well. And the third thing which inspired me to do the posters is what um, David Pace has called the private shame factor. Students may not be terribly invested in our courses. That's the sad truth. And sometimes they will write something that's really pretty substandard, and they will turn it in, and they will get their substandard grade on it, and it is a private shame. You know, the grade stings, but they go on. So the third part is to make the work public, and that does two things. It offers an incentive for students to do the best work that they're capable of. We haven't done our first poster session yet, but we're going to do it after you do your next poster. We'll have a poster session in class. You'll be able to walk around and look at other people's posters. And some teams in the past have had a sort of a rude awakening when they walk around and they see other people's posters, both in terms of their own efforts, but also I think students have no idea of what other students are doing. So a student who's, you know, putting in an hour or two a week on this class and, you know, sort of throwing something together for the homework and turning it in has no idea often that there are people in the class who are not doing that. So all that came together in posters. In a poster, you have to choose. You can't put everything you know in a poster. You can't, it can't be like an essay where you just throw things in and you hope that the teacher will get it. Um, if you don't have an argument, it is immediately and clearly obvious to everyone that you don't have one. If you don't really have conclusions, it's absolutely clear. If you're not mastering the material, it becomes very clear. So from a teacher assessment point, point of view, it allows me to see really clearly what the students can and cannot do, what they know and they're able to do and they don't know and they're not able to do. Um, but also, I have to say that, and you haven't done this yet, the poster session at the end of the year is actually a lot of fun. 
you know, the work's all done, the posters are on the wall, I am going to ask you to evaluate somebody else's poster that's not particularly onerous. There will be snacks. It will be a small hiatus of calm in the middle of the craziness that is finals week. So um, it, had, it, it actually ended up being a, a really interesting, fun assignment. I'm glad. I'm never going back to tests because tests basically only test recall. And I want to I wanna see you thinking. I can't see you thinking on tests because there's not enough time. Yeah, it seems like that has a lot more real-world applications like mm -hmm. for after college. So I, I definitely like it better. And I'm excited to win the poster challenge at the end. My group is pretty solid. I hope we win. Well, um, do you remember, though, that like the real world, I'm not the jury. The jury is going to be three people who are not in our class. In fact, I've the faculty member who's agreed to be on the jury is an American historian. So they're going to walk in and your poster is going to have to make sense to people who haven't done what we've done. So don't feel bad if your poster doesn't win. You can still get a really pretty whack and good grade on it, <laughs> but we don't, there, are no, there are no limits. We don't you know, insist that only one poster can be the best. And I, in the past, sometimes the jury has chosen a different poster than I would have chosen. But that's the way juries work. That's the real world. It isn't always a f company can do a really beautiful job and somebody else gets selected. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Well, I, I hope to win anyway. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Good uh, luck. Thank you. Uh, so in, in your class, you do a lot of creative things. You're quite the performer. I remember one time where someone asked you a question about grading, I think, and you burst into song, and you sang a song <laughs> in front of everyone. I think you got a standing ovation for it. But anyway, you do a lot of performing, you make videos and stuff. Is that a part of your study of history, or is that just part of you? Like, uh, your study of pedagogy, I mean, sorry, your study of learning how to teach. Did you find that that works better, or are you just naturally a performer? I think I'm naturally a performer. Um, I think that the goal in pedagogy is always to find a teaching style that's authentic, that is learning-centered, that is where the goal is not what a wonderful teacher I am, but having your students learn. Um, and there are lots of different effective teaching styles. And so I've chosen one because I like to perform. I have to say that I do more of it now that I'm older. I mean, there's something about reaching 60. And, you know, I can be ridiculous in front of the class because I now have enough experience and enough confidence in what I'm doing that... And I think also age plays a role in the dynamic between teachers and students. It's a lot harder for someone younger um, to do things which might seem to, un to them to undermine their authority. You know, at, at 60, age gives me a, a fair bit of authority in the classroom that I didn't have when I was first started teaching, when I was you know, 29. And... Um, and I was, you know, not that much older than my students, and I was sort of big sister. You know, they looked at me, and I was sort of big sister, and um, that was a different dynamic. That has actually been one of the most difficult things about teaching that I have encountered, which is students are a moving target. Every generation of students is different. Things that used to work really well don't work for anymore. Things that work now would not have worked in the past because students are different. But I'm a moving target, too. I'm changing. And so my teaching has to keep changing along with my students and myself. So on the one hand, that makes it harder. On the other hand, it's what keeps you from getting stale as a teacher it, because you're always learning. Um, and uh, Keith Barton, who teaches over in the education school, teaches the pre, runs the social studies program there, um, said to me, the teachers who burn out are the people who don't recognize that teaching is an intellectual activity. And the teachers who stay on year after year after year and continue to enjoy teaching are people who see teaching as being an intellectual act. And I have to say that I now see everything I do as teaching. Um, when I'm in the classroom with you, I'm teaching. When I'm giving a conference paper, I'm teaching. When I'm writing an article or a book, I'm teaching. 
It's all teaching. And what that has meant is I bring into my research what I understand from my teaching. Uh, and that's been really beneficial for me as a scholar, not just as a teacher. And I try to bring my scholarship into my, my teaching, too. Um, and I will admit, I do, you know, I think about things that might catch student interest. Um, but some of that is going to be dependent on the willingness of a group of students to be interested. Um, and I have to say that the chemistry in the class that you're taking is, um, is very comfortable in a lot of ways. Um, it isn't always. It's unpredictable. Just as in the teams that you're working in, the chemistry of the team can make a huge difference in how well the team works together. I had a team two years ago, and again, it was um, none of the students in the team, maybe one student was a very able student from the start, was really strong, really understood what was going on. Every student in that team you know, really struggled with it, tr plugged along, tried to do it. Um, the team had a leader who was enormously welcoming and encouraging, was not the strongest student in the team. And that team, by the end of the semester, did a superb poster, just a beautiful poster. And more than that, they came out of it feeling good about themselves and each other. I mean, even the strong student who was initially, I think, a little frustrated by having students who were less strong in the team with him, came out of it and said, you know, about some other student, that student really came along during the course of the semester, you know, in a way that suggested that he took some credit for that, as he, pro he certainly should have. You know, that's a really sort of ideal thing, but you can't, the chemistry, really, you have, I have no control over. You just cross your fingers and you hope, and usually it's okay. Occasionally it's disastrous, I have to say. Do you, what's common of the teams who do have a good chemistry, though? Like, what, what makes it, what makes the chemistry, what, what, what brings it there? Okay, one of it is that, is re respect for each other. Uh, but the other part is that everybody is doing their, you know, their best. And their best may be that they can get, you know, just the lowest grade on the homework, the lowest acceptable grade. That may be their best, but they are doing it, and they um, and they put effort into it. So the best teams, everybody does all the work. They do it at different levels. There are different strengths. And so what happens is you have all of these ingredients that everybody brings in. And then you can say, oh, yeah, we'll take this, and we'll take this, and we'll take that. Uh, there's a misunderstanding about teamwork, I would say. And people see teamwork as, oh, it's easier because we divide up the task. In the best teams, it's not easier. It's just better. And it's, it's not easier because everybody does as much of the task as they can. But it's better because they have so much more to work with when they get there. And the best teams tend to work that way. And do you think the same is true for individual students, too? Uh, I mean, as far as, like, just doing the work, is that what makes a good student great? Uh, or, I guess, how, what do you think the difference is between a great student and a good student, and a good student and a bad student? Okay. To me, a bad student is always a student who's not willing to do the work. A good student is a student who's willing to do the work at whatever level he or she is able to do the work. Um, and we all have a learning curve for everything. I don't think that there are, there may be inherent limits in terms of what students can do, an individual student can do, but I don't think most college education gets anywhere near those limits. I think I have rare, I don't know that I've ever had a student in my class who I thought could not eventually learn to do what I wanted them to learn to do extremely well. Not all of those students are going to be able to do it in the 15 weeks I have. Them. But I have never had a student that I looked at and said, nope, nope, hopeless, can't do it. Um, and with perseverance, students get better. Now some of that perseverance is, and I wish more students took advantage of the opportunity to rewrite assignments, 
um, revising what you've done is one of the most powerful ways to learn. It's one of the reasons why I do that sneaky thing with that first poster. <laughs> yeah, you've got to explain that. <laughs> um, well, the first poster, we assign the poster and students do the poster, and we grade the poster, which is the point at which we tell students that that poster was a draft <laughs> and that we want them to revise it. Revising things is a powerful, powerful learning tool. Um, my very first uh, pedagogical inquiry was for a course portfolio that I did. It was actually for medieval heroes. <laughs> and I, in preparation for doing the course portfolio, I realized that I wanted to be seen as like the best teacher possible, right? So I, it was the first time that I actually ever sat down and really designed a course. That is not chose a bunch of content and organized it into weeks, but said, how are we going to get to the end of the semester? What's the end of the semester going to look like? And part of that was deciding that I would allow students to revise any assignment they wished for as much credit as they could get. So I generated an enormous amount of data. I had 100 students in that class. And I had, um, they, all, they wrote homework assignments every week. In those days, punctuated by essays that individual students wrote. And I, so I had an enormous amount of data. And fortunately, I had a statistician friend who plunked it all into an Excel. I guess I gave him the Excel file. And he ran all sorts of statistical tests on it for me. And one of the tests he ran was on student revision of assignments. And the effect of the revision on the students who chose to do it was remarkable. Now, a lot of people said, oh, yeah, sure. You have students rewrite an assignment, and you give them lots of feedback, and of course it's better. So, you know, have they actually learned anything? Well, the students could not revise their last essay. So one of the tests he ran was he ran a graph showing the final grade of the student um, in relation to how many assignments the student had rewritten. And as we might expect, um, it was kind of triangular. So there was a big spread at no revision students who did really poorly, students who did really well. Students who did really well, of course, didn't have to revise their work. They were getting top grades anyway. And then it narrowed up to about a B plus, okay? When we ran the same graph against the student's grade on the final essay, we got the same pattern. The grades were a little bit lower. So the answer is, no, students can't achieve at the same level um, without help as they can with help. But students can achieve at a much higher level than they would have been able to without that experience of rewriting. Um, and there's actually educational theory behind it, which I didn't know at the time. But somebody said to me, oh, yes, you know, that's Vygotsky. You know, that's the zone of proximal development. And I said, oh, what? What, what is that? And Vygotsky's idea was that if you have two, say, 12-year-olds, and there's a task you give them, and one of them can do it with help, and the other one of them can't do it even with help, what you're seeing is different levels of cognitive development. Even though, if you give them the test and they have no help, they'll both fail it. Um, and so his theory was you always want to be have students operating in that area where they can do something with help, because that's where the learning is occurring. I didn't know any of that theory when I did this. but So I'm really committed to the notion of rewriting. Um, and revising. I wish more students did it. I think they would learn more. It requires more of an investment on their part. Um, but it's very powerful. It's really inspiring to hear how grit and perseverance can lead to real outcomes like in the real world. Because like, you hear all the time, like, just keep at it and then it will work out. But it's nice to hear that that does work out statistically. Like, that, that's the case. I have just a few quick questions before we wrap this thing up. So who is a historical figure who you look up to? 
You mean a person in the past who I look up to? Yeah. or uh, uh, it can be anyone. If you have a modern person, too, that's great. Wow. That's a really, really tough one. I don't know that I have a specific historical figure um, who I look up to. I will say that um, there is a part of me, and this is probably because I'm a medievalist, that tends to have a sort of idealized vision of what it would be to be a monastic historian and just have all of that time to have this orderly life with other people cooking my food for me and just able to live that life with the mind. I know that that's not how it really was. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I get very fond of the people I work on. So I've been working on a guy named William of Andre, who was the abbot of a tiny monastery in the Pas de Calais. Um, and he has his faults. But um, I've been working on a history that he wrote and become very, very fond of him. I think I don't look up to historical figures, but there are certain historical figures I become mm -hmm. fond of. He's a guy of enormous energy, um, of intellect. He must have been a very charismatic person. I'm not sure that charisma comes through in his text. But he met powerful people who then became his friends and patrons. And he became widely respected, even though his monastery is a pretty insignificant little place. So um, I've enjoyed his company, I would say. That's cool. Um, what is, what was I going to ask? Oh, yeah. What's your favorite story from, it, it can be from the Middle Ages, or it can just be anything at all. And it can be fictional or nonfiction. What's your favorite story of all time? Ha. Huh. And if you can't think of one, you can just think of like one of your favorites. Ah, well, I'm always I'm always sort of coming across things that make me go hmm, or things that make me laugh aloud when um, when I read them. There are always things which which reach across the centuries. I think that probably one of the most um, poignant. Uh, things. Well, a couple. Of, I, th I think I tend to go for poignancy. Um, when I read a history, sometimes the way a story is told just reaches across time and wrenches my heart. So I will give you an example from a text that I translated um, about a decade ago. Um, it involves a man who disappears on the Second Crusade. And he has an illegitimate son, the only child he has. Uh, so he disappears in 1148. And then decades later, a man appears claiming to be uh, this man, Baldwin of Ard. And his son is brought to see him to try to verify his identity. And he can't tell. He must have been eight when his father vanished on him, and he was illegitimate, so he probably didn't have that much contact with his father anyway. But he says he can't tell. And eventually it becomes clear that um, this man is an imposter, and he goes away. And what comes through the narrative is the longing that the narrator has for his father and the hope that this man will turn out to be his father and the disappointment that this man has not turned out to be his father. It's just kind of a wrenching story that brings out, I think, the humanity of all of the people involved. And of course it also points to some other issues that about the Middle Ages, identity, you know, how you know who people are in an age before photographs, um, the problem of how many people disappear on crusades. Most of the people who leave on the first crusade do not come home. We forget that when we talk about the crusades. Awful lots of people go and don't come back. And what that means for the people that they leave behind, the holes that they leave, and the pain that they leave. Yeah, I think those kinds of stories really speak to me. Okay, if you, this is my last question. If you had an opportunity to give a commencement speech to either high school students about to enter college or college students ready to head into the real world, 
what would you make your speech about? What lesson would you try to impart upon them? I think I'd rather speak to high school students. I think it's really hard to do commencement addresses. I went to commencement in, in May, and the speakers did very well. And I sort of looked at that and said, hmm, I couldn't possibly do that. <laughs> um, I think for high school students, what I would want to talk about are the pleasures of the life of the mind. We spend a lot of time you know, thinking about the pleasures of the body and of the physical world. But I would like them to come away knowing that there's pleasure in the mind as well, in thinking that it's cool to know stuff. I still think that, you know. I'm 61 years old, I still think it's cool to know stuff. And nothing, I guess I would echo Hugh of St. Victor about that. He, he, in his uh, Data Scalicon, he talks about how students are complaining about how they have to learn all these facts. They want to go to interpretation, to allegory immediately. And he does a sort of an old fart kind of little speech where he says, Oh, I remember when I was a boy, I used to lie out on my back at night and I used to learn the name of the stars. And But he ends by saying, Nothing that I've learned weighs heavily on my stomach. And I guess my attitudes are really shaped from, uh, in part, coming from a diasporic culture. Uh, my father is Jewish, and Jews have always known that what you will be able to take with you is what you carry between your ears. You may have to leave everything behind, every physical object behind. But short of killing you, people can't take away what's between your ears. So it's good to have really well-packed luggage between your ears. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun, and thank you so much for your time. Um, it was fun for me, too. I'm glad you had a good time. And to all of our listeners, thank you for your time as well. I'll add links to everything that we talked about in the show notes. So if you want to check anything that Professor Shapkow uh, talked about out, just look down there. Until next time, continue to go out and learn new things. See ya.